Take those Bibles, and if you would open them up to 1 John chapter 5. Over the past several weeks, we've been looking at several foundational truths that we can believe and confess with great confidence. Uh, The first truth that we discovered here in the final chapter of this letter is that we know that Jesus is the Son of God. The second truth was that those who believe in the Son of God have eternal life. Last week, we discovered the truth that God answers prayers. This morning, John is going to illustrate how praying in accordance to the will of God is uh, honoring and, and is what is expected of each of us. And he, does, uh, he communicates that by providing us a specific example. And that example serves as the basis for the fourth truth. And the fourth truth is that we have been called to pray for one another. 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 through 19, it says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. There is so much that is packed and contained within these few verses. Uh, these few verses are not light. Uh, nor are they easy uh, to handle. And so it's with great caution uh, that I I attempt to try to uh, unpack these verses and to convey to you the truths in which I believe are contained within them. Uh, These verses uh, are, are highly and widely debated. And so I'm going to try to walk us through verse by verse and do the very best that I believe that I can in how we handle this text. Uh, Because a a lot of pastors, a lot of commentaries do not agree on the interpretation of these texts. Uh, I've wrestled through them, and I'm at a place where I'm at peace with what I'm about to share with you. And in my prayer is that if you have ears to listen, that you will hear the Word of God and allow it to change and transform who you are and how we practice our faith. And so let's begin with verse number 16. Again, I'll read it. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will, for him, give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. A couple of things that stand out in this verse, to me at least, uh, first of all, is that word death. What is John talking about when he's using that word? Uh, For death can be applied one of two ways. Either it is a physical death or it is a spiritual death. So so to which is, is John addressing? Is he talking about a physical death or is he talking about spiritual death? Now, I fully believe that what John is speaking about here is in reference to physical death. Physical death. He's not talking about a spiritual death. 
because I believe that he's addressing children of God. And as children of God, the truth that we've already discovered is that if you are born of God, if you're a child of God, then you have eternal life. So he's not addressing spiritual death. I believe he's addressing physical death. And also, he uses the term brother. There are wide debates on on how that term is to be interpreted. I believe it is consistent in, in which he's addressing those that belong to God. So John is saying that a believer can commit a sin for which God would call them home physically. That is, that he will remove them As a result of that sin, he will remove that person from this world. Perhaps because they they become stiff-necked, rebellious, or outright just non-glorifying to the Father. Scripture gives us examples of this reality. We see it in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Bible mentions many people who died as a result of a deliberate act of rebellion against God. In Leviticus chapter 10, uh, two sons of Aaron died because uh, they, they did not offer sacrifices appropriately. Then in uh, Numbers chapter 16, you have Korah and his clan, they opposed God and they died. You read about the story in, in Joshua chapter 6 and 7. You read about a story of Achan who, who literally was executed along with his family because Achan was deliberate and disobeying the instructions that God gave in how to uh, overtake Jericho. And so he rebelled against those destructions and it literally cost him his life. Now, before you begin to think, oh, but those are Old Testament examples. We're New Testament believers living under the grace of God. Well, well, yes, that is a true statement. But but to, to whom much is given, much is required. So we too are without excuse. We have a complete Bible to guide our, us in our living, which means we have the full revelation of the grace of God. In addition to that, Those that are born of God have the Spirit of God dwelling within us to lead us, to guide us, to instruct us, to direct us in living. So even with this, think about there are New Testament examples of people who when they deliberately disobeyed God, God removed them from the face of the earth. So some examples that come to mind, uh, the obvious one at least for me is contained in Acts chapter 5. Is the example of Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira, they were part of the early church, but they were guilty of deceit. They had been willing to give a false impression to the church. They tried to uh, present themselves as being something more than what they actually were. And as a result of their action, God literally removed them from this world. And he did so immediately. And Acts chapter 5 is a frightening story to to read through. But they're not the only ones. You can read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. There, people had been gathering to to worship God through the observance of the Lord's Supper, but some had been coming to the Lord's table uh, in an unworthy manner. Some had been coming drunk and disorderly. And as a result of that, 
behavior, God removed them from this world. Paul writes in First uh, Corinthians chapter 11, verse number 30, he says, For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. The word sleep means they died. They, they were removed from this world. Paul is saying they had committed a sin for them that caused them to be removed from the face of this earth. And so someone might be thinking at this point, well, what is this sin that is a sin unto death? And remember, we're talking about a physical death. We're not talking about a spiritual death because these children are, are children of God. So, so what is this sin? What is this specific sin that if we commit this sin could cause us to be literally removed from this world? Well, now that is a difficult question to handle. Because for Ananias and Sapphira, it was the fact that they were deceitful and they were living like hypocrites. For the, for the people in Corinth, it was because uh, they were coming to the Lord's table and they were coming in, in, in a manner of disorder. Uh, they were getting drunk before they participated with the Lord's Supper. So may you know that a sin unto death is not one singular specific sin. I have a feeling that a sin unto death for you might be considerably different than what the sin unto death would be for, for me. It, it's different. It, it, it varies. But I'm of the opinion that every believer is capable of committing a sin unto death. I think that's a, that, that's a reality, whatever that sin is for them. Now this does not mean that every believer that dies, died because they committed a sin unto death. But it couldn't mean that. Don't know. And so the emphasis is not on identifying a specific sin that if committed in your life would lead unto death, that's not the emphasis. If that were the emphasis, I believe that John would have told us what that uh, specific sin would be. The emphasis is placed on brothers and sisters in Christ being caring and loving enough for one another to be aware of what's happening in the lives of others so that when we see a brother and sister in Christ in need, when we see them entangled in sin, that we would immediately stop to pray, to intercede on their behalf. I think the problem, one of the problems with the modern church is that we tend to be uh, the only group that will isolate or shoot our, our wounded brothers and sisters. But we've been called to love one another. We've been called to love one another enough that we would be compelled to pray for one another when we're carried away in the deceitfulness of this world. And so when we see someone in trouble, notice it said when we see, not if we see, the reality is that we're going to become aware of it at some point in our lives that we're going to know or we're going to see a brother or sister in Christ in need, entangled in sin. And when we see them in sin, then the love of God should compel us to be obedient to the Word of God and we should stop and we should pray immediately interceding on their behalf. 
what we need is we need to be spending so much more time on our knees before the throne of God's grace than we do bending the ear of any and everyone that will listen to us so that we can talk and gossip about the sins of other people. We've been called and commanded not to gossip about other people's sin. We've been called and commanded to pray for them. Sometimes a believer may sin so seriously that God judges that sin by removing them from this world. But the supermajority of the sin that we might commit does not fall into that category because we continue and yet we live. But, but, but we need to know that we're commanded to pray. And when we're praying for sin that's being produced or evident into the life of another believer, then, then we ought to be praying because we're greatly concerned because if that sin is continued long enough, then God very well might remove them from this world. And it's a truth we don't like to talk about much. Most churches don't even like to talk about sin, much less God removing us from this world as a result of our sin. But that's what Scripture teaches us. Places like Proverbs chapter 11, verse number 19, says, He who is steadfast in righteousness will attain to life, and he who pursues evil will bring about his own death. Also in Proverbs chapter 19, it says that he who keeps the commandment keeps his soul, but he who is careless of conduct will die. So when a believer sees another believer in sin, then we, we ought to be praying for this sinning believer. We should pray with the aim that God would grant them life, that God would grant them physical life, that he would restore and revitalize and strengthen the believer, that he would increase the measure of faith that's in their lives. We, 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 we pray that God would preserve and, and strengthen the believer. That, that's what we should do. We also should be living our lives with the realization that failure to repent, failure to forsake sin may eventually lead to God's judgment on us individually. Notice what John says in verse number 17. Verse number 17, he says, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. I love how John just levels the playing field here. Just in case some of us began to get puffed up or conceited and thinking, well, at least I haven't sinned, uh, committed the sin leading unto death. John levels the playing field here by telling us all unrighteousness is sin. And this verse, too, has suffered a great deal. I think it's suffered because of the overemphasis that's placed on trying to determine which sin leads to death. Again, John's not trying to address which sin leads to death. He's commanding us to love each other enough to be aware of what's happening in our lives. And when we see someone in our family that's being hurt or led away in sin, then we're to love them enough to stop and to pray and intercede on their behalf. 
after all, praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ fulfills that single twofold command that John gives us in, in 1 John chapter 3, verse number 23, where he says, And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us to love one another. The most loving thing that we can do is to pray on behalf of one another. And so while we acknowledge that sin is outright rebellion against God, sin is never acceptable, sin is always repulsive, no matter what you think, no matter how you feel, sin is always, always, always wrong. So while we acknowledge that sin is outright rebellion against God, we also acknowledge the greatness of God's grace. We also acknowledge the willingness of our Lord to forgive and to restore us. And so this realization should be motive enough for us that would compel us to get on our knees and to pray for one another. But let's be honest. Think about it. When is the last time you grieved over sin? When's the last time? When's the last time your heart just ached because of sin and the presence of sin? I'm going even further. Like, when's the last time you just broke down because of the sin that's in the life of someone whom you love? When's the last time that, that you were just saddened to the core because of the sin that you see in someone who doesn't even have a relationship with Jesus? When's the last time that you've been burdened not just over sin or the sins of others? Man, let's get personal. When's the last time your own sin beat you down? It just broke you with the, with the realization that you have fallen way short of the glory of God. Why is it that we tend to, to treat sin so lightly? Why is it that we, we tend to feel that some sins aren't as bad as other sins? Why is it that we think that we have the right that we can classify or rank sin and then judge other people based upon how they rank or how they measure up because of the sin in their life in comparison to the sin that's in our own? Scripture says all unrighteousness is sin. There's not a single act of unrighteousness that is not sin. No matter what we think, no matter how we feel, no, no matter what culture demands, that doesn't change the opinion of our Father. Sin is sin. Unrighteousness is unrighteousness. Therefore, we must repent and forsake all sin. Look around. Well, literally, look around. I want you to notice that every one of us shares something in common. We have all sinned. We have all fallen way short of the glory of God. Every single one of us were guilty of sin. At some point or another in your life, maybe this week, man, maybe even this morning, maybe even right now, at some point or another, we've all ignored God. We've neglected Him. 
We've failed to believe Him. We've disobeyed Him. We've rebelled against Him. We've outright rejected Him. Because of sin in our lives, it makes us unacceptable unto God. Because of sin, we have been alienated and separated from Him. We cannot live, we cannot dwell in the presence of the holy and righteous God. We're all guilty of sin. Because God is perfect, no imperfection can dwell among His presence. But there's good news. Oh, the glorious Gospel. God sent His one and only Son into this world. Jesus Christ took our sins upon Himself at the cross. He took the guilt and He took the judgment that we deserve. And He laid down His life as a willing sacrifice. And when we trust and when we believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, then God counts His death as ours. God counts our sins as having been atoned for by the death of His Son. In other words, He removes the guilt of our sin. Not only does He remove our guilt, then He replaces that guilt with the righteousness of His Son. Therefore, we we become acceptable to God. Not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is and what He's done. The the glorious message of the Gospel is that if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, then our sin is removed, His righteousness is credited to our account, and now we can have access to the Father and we can dwell in His presence forever. But it's all because of Jesus. All because of Him. And let's, let's keep going. Look at verse number 18. Verse number 18. This is where it gets tricky. He says, we know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. All right, so what's going on here? Good question. Uh, Look back at the, the first part of the verse. He says, we know that no one who is born of God sins. And then John has already addressed this reality back in chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse number 9, he says, no one who is born of God practices sin. And so as in chapter 3, here, occasional sin is not what John is addressing. John is talking about habitual sin. Lifestyle embracing and engrossing sin. And so how does a believer keep himself from sinning in this way? How does a believer keep themselves from embracing and immersing themselves in a life of sin? The beautiful reality is 1 John chapter 5, verse number 18 gives us the answer. It's because of the work and the person of Jesus Christ. Look at the first part of the verse. This verse is tricky. In the first part of the verse, he mentions the believer as the one who is born of God. It says, we know that no one who is born of God sins. He's talking about the believer. So so we could read it as, we know that no believer sins. Right? Like I said, he already addressed that. Chapter 3, verse number 9. Okay, now it's the second part of the verse where it gets interesting. 
Because I believe that John has, has, has transitioned in the second part. When he talks about the one who is born of God in that second part, I believe that he's made the transition from talking about the believer to talking about Jesus Christ. And, and so when he says, but he who was born of God keeps him, I believe that the, the appropriate translation would be that, but Jesus keeps him. Now, in order to give you evidence or, or proof as to why I believe this, uh, we've got to understand, look at the totality of what John has written and how he has written it. John consistently uses the perfect tense verb, born, when he's talking about a believer being born of God. And so I'll show you these references. In 1 John chapter 2, verse number 29, he says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. It's, it's a perfect tense verb. Then in, in chapter 3, verse number 9, he says, No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Again, perfect tense verb. Uh, chapter 4. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Perfect tense verb. Uh, chapter 5, verse number 1, it starts off with, Whoever believes that Jesus Christ, uh, or that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God. Same way, perfect tense verb. Uh, you get to uh, verse number 4, it says, For whatever is born of God, overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith so now look at verse number 18 now in, in verse number 18 john writes we know that no one who is born of god sins perfect tense verb being used there and then he goes from using the the perfect tense verb in the first time the first half to the aorist tense verb in the second half it says, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. The verb born that's being used in that second part, it implies a, an action that has been completed by an outside agent. I, I believe it's in reference to, to the incarnation of Christ. And, and it makes sense because it says, we know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him. Or... To simplify it, we know that no believer practices sin, but Jesus keeps the believer. It's Jesus. It's, it's Him. It's not us. It's not our own strength, our own might, our own will. It's because of Christ. And so back in John chapter 3, or 1 John chapter 3, verse 6 and verse 9, We've already discovered that those who are born of God do not live a life of sin. I think here, uh, John adds another dimension to this concept. Here, he says that the one who is born of God keeps him. That Jesus himself keeps us. See, understand that at this time of John's writing, John's also addressing and and working against false teachers in that area. And so there are false teachers that were dividing the church. Uh, 
they were spreading the heresy that Jesus was not the, the Son of God. Uh, they were trying to teach others that, that, that Jesus was not born or conceived of a virgin birth, but, but rather he was a biological, legitimate child of Mary and Joseph. And so John here, he says, Jesus was born of God, keeps the believer. And then he says, and the evil one does not touch him. Touch who? The evil one does not touch the believer. Jesus has conquered death. The, 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 the last stronghold of Satan has been defeated by Christ. And, and, and so Satan cannot touch God's children. And so to make sure we understand what he's saying, that phrase, does not touch, it means to lay hold of. It means uh, to grasp or to seize in order to harm or control. And you never forget, as God's children, we belong to God. Nothing or no one can change that reality. We are secured. We are protected in our relationship with Christ. Now, Satan is limited. He might not feel like he's limited, but, but Satan must operate within God's sovereignty. Satan cannot function beyond what God allows. Sometimes Satan will attack you individually, bring hardships, bring troubles, bring turmoils, but may you know that Satan is not able to do what God has not sovereignly allowed him to do. That's a hard reality because we want a pain-free, trouble-free life. But sometimes God in His sovereignty allows Satan to test us, to tempt us, to, to question us, to discourage us so that His name can be glorified or so that we can grow as a process. Sometimes things happen in our life that God has sovereignly allowed for either His glory or for our good. And so God protects His children. God places limits on the influence and power that Satan has. I want to show you something in John's writing, in, in John chapter 17. Go ahead and turn there. John chapter 17 is a beautiful prayer that Jesus prays for His children or His followers. And as you're turning to John chapter 17, let me quickly read to you two verses from John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. We're secured, protected in our relationship with Him. Now, in John chapter 17, listen to Jesus' prayer for those who, who follow Him. John chapter 17, beginning in verse number 9. He says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. 
I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. John 17, verse 14 says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask, I'd underline this one, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus doesn't pray that all the troubles and problems of this world would be removed from our lives. No, he prays that the, that the Father, through the Spirit, will sustain us in the midst of all of it. And he goes on, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you send me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Father loves us enough. Those that put our faith and trust in His Son, He loves us that He will keep us, will guard us. Satan will not be allowed free reign over our lives, but whatever happens in our lives are all under God's sovereign plans for us. May you know, may may you trust in the sovereignty of our Lord that you can depend on Him. He's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. He's never going to abandon you. And He's never going to turn you over to a spiritual death if you put your faith and trust in His Son. Wrap it up real fast back in chapter 5 of 1 John. One final verse. Verse number 19. It says, We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know that we are protected and that we belong to God. But we also know that we are currently living in enemy-occupied territory. Don't ever forget that. John wants us to be fully aware that there will be difficulties that lie ahead. Yes, our ultimately, uh, our victory has been secured. But make no mistake, there will be battles and casualties along the way. Therefore, love one another enough to be aware of what's happening in your life. Love one another enough that when you see a brother or sister sinning, that you'll stop and you'll pray, you'll intercede on their behalf so that they won't be given over to that sin, fully embracing that sin, so that that sin doesn't ultimately lead to their death. Oh, that we would love one another enough, that we would care for each other enough, that we would be willing to pray for one another. And I'm not, not just praying for our, our boo-boos and our sicknesses, but praying that we would be delivered and set free from the temptation of that sin that keeps on tripping us up. A lot of times we don't want to be that vulnerable. A lot of times we don't want to share those kind of struggles with each other. But when we take that approach, 
we're, we're, we're doing a disservice to us and to the body of Christ. We're to love one another enough to join together, to hold one another accountable, and to pray for each other. And I often wonder, have we lost that urgency? Have we lost that desire to, to truly invest in each other, to know each other, to love each other, to pray for one another? It's an interesting dilemma that's in the church today, not just any church, but even our church specifically. How is it that we can have so much engagement on a Sunday morning for an hour of worship, but then when that hour of worship comes to an end, it's like we separate, we disappear, we hide out, and we rarely get back together again. I don't understand it. You know, we do things, we offer things like midweek worship opportunities, prayer gatherings, and and there's less than 10% participation and engagement for something like that on a Wednesday. And it makes me wonder, like, why? Like, what, what is it? Is it the wrong night? Is it the, the wrong hour? Is there a better day of the week that, that would be more engaging? Is there a better time of the week that would be more beneficial? If so, then we as a church, we need to be willing to entertain that, to evaluate, to make that adjustment. Because we want full participation and engagement. We think it's important that we gather together to study the Word of God, to teach the Word of God, to proclaim His Word, and to rightly apply His Word into our lives. And so we'll look for every opportunity that we can to engage in that process. My desire is that we'll have a hunger and a willingness to make certain sacrifices in our lives that we would begin to put a high value on God's Word. And I look at you and I'm so thankful that you're here, but I think about the people that are watching today. And some of them are watching now and some of them are going to watch later. And I've got, a, I've got a, a, a big burden for them. Because I know that there are some that are watching right now that are legitimately trying to isolate themselves, to keep themselves protected. They have underlying health issues, and so they're being very cautious, and so they're rightly staying at home, protecting themselves. But I think that's a small minority. I think the vast majority of people have used COVID-19 as an excused absence from church. They sit at home, they get disengaged, and then the minds are saying, but COVID's happening, so I'm not wrong in doing this. A church that fails to assemble is not a church. The gathering, the assembling together, that's what we've been called, that's what we've been commanded to do. And we will do that no matter what. No matter what. Nothing will stop us from doing that. We should love one another enough to hold each other accountable in our lives, to intercede on behalf of one another when we see each other struggling, and spend more time on our knees praying for each other than picking up the phone and gossiping to one another. May we become that loving community that loves God and loves one another enough to do just that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this church, Father, for the opportunities that you have given us. I pray that we would be faithful 
and following through. God, we know that you have uniquely blessed each and every one of your children with a spiritual gift. It is the purpose of the church to join those spiritual gifts together and service unto you so that your name could be proclaimed and that you would receive the glory that you're due. So God, help us to do that. Help us to love each other. Help us to speak truth to one another. Help us to care for each other. And God, help us to pray for one another. God, we thank you for whatever lies ahead. God, help us to rely upon you for our strength. God, help us to, to study your word and to rightly apply it to our lives. In Christ's name I pray, amen.